This week, Mark Blundell on how to win in America, why Williams were so good in their heyday, and which driver reminds him of Ayrton Senna. And now, from kitchen tables around the world, this is F1 Nation. We didn't have a Grand Prix at the weekend, but it's still been a busy week in and around the world of Formula One. So let's talk about it on The Nation with me, Tom Clarkson. And with me, Alex Jakes. Now, first up, former Formula One star Takuma Sato won the Indy 500 on Sunday. And AJ, you were calling that race for the first time. How was it, mate? It was a dream come true, to be honest. It has always been an incredible occasion. It's a race that I've, I've loved since I was very, very young. Um, and the efforts of Dan Weldon, the late Dan Weldon, got me into it. And the pomp, the ceremony, all the traditions, the fact that it's existed for such a long time, part of the Triple Crown. And it has so many F1 connections as well. So as you mentioned, Takuma Sato taking his second victory there. It takes a long time for that race to progress. At one point, it looked like it was going to be another driver, Scott Dixon. But Takuma Sato, you might be thinking, how is Takuma Sato still driving? Well, experience, it counts for a lot over there, Tom. <laughs> it was a wonderful race to be uh, just a small part of. And congratulations to Takuma because that, that was a very knowledgeable drive that he put in. And and in the end, he was a deserving winner. Now, a Grand Prix is, what is it? It's maximum two hours, right? Yeah. How long were you on air for a 500-mile race on Sunday? I can't. I mean, I can tell you how long it felt. It felt like five minutes by how quickly it went past. I think we were on air for five hours from the pre-show and then all the way rattling through uh, this. They're doing speeds of 220 miles an hour in race trim in qualifying trim they're doing two three four two three five it is unbelievably fast out there um but 500 miles takes a while and yeah in the end it was a it was a long over three hours for the race and the build-up taking a little bit of time but um i'd have done i'd have done 10 hours i absolutely loved it now aj let's put a bit of formula one slant on it so takuma wins it Yes. Second. Uh, was he a deserving winner? You mentioned Scott Dixon there, but right guy won it. If Scott Dixon led so many laps and if Scott Dixon had won, everyone had gone fastest guy over the last two weeks. Absolutely deserved it. Fast in qualifying, fast in race trim, deserves it. He had the sort of Fernando Alonso 2012 look on his face at the end of the race because he knew he was the best guy out there and he'd let it get away from him. But... Every time towards the latter stages in Indy, you're always going to get a late battle. It's a skill to get yourself in the mix and to take advantage at the end. They all know that's how it works in Indianapolis. But Takuma Sato, a very popular winner, a very well-liked chap. He basically has his best days in motorsport and Indianapolis because he got his only Formula One podium there as well back in 2004. And Tom, lots of chat across the weekend about Roger Penske, now the owner of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, of getting Formula One back at that iconic venue. And FIA president Jean Todd there as well. Uh, I read that Jean was shown around the facility by Roger, I think on race morning. I mean, it would be fantastic. I'll, I remember that the races, the US Grand Prix uh, was there from 2000 to 2007. I was actually at qualifying for the 500 last year, 2019. 
facilities hadn't changed at all, I might add, <laughs> in that time. But uh, in fact, you kept telling me on the commentary that it's all been it's all been upgraded since Penske's taken over. And, you know, Formula One wants a second race in the US and there is no more iconic venue in the world, really, than in Indianapolis. Um, I would just hope that we use a little bit more of the oval if we go back because the infield there certainly first time around was very pokey, very slow. And I felt it didn't uh, play to a Formula One car's strengths. So we're a little bit more flat out, a few more fast corners and you've nailed it. That would be a brilliant place to have the race. You just want to see him go through, through uh, three turns of the oval and then maybe a bit of a chicane and then back out there, which yeah. is basically what the plan is in Bahrain, isn't it, for one of the races? <laughs> yes, race two, exactly. Right. But look, before we go on from the 500, quick Alonso checkup. What happened to him? Uh, he had clutch problems, but in all honesty... At no stage of the two weeks of practice and race day did it look like Fernando was going to be able to compete. Um, he's had three different teams in his three attempts at Indy. Uh, the first team, one of the big three, the Andretti effort in his first year when he led the race out there for over 20 laps. Um, since then, he's been with various different versions of a McLaren run, and they have not been with traditional powerhouse teams at Indianapolis. IndyCar is no different to Formula One. You've got to be in the right team to be able to win. And he just did not look like he was going to have the front running pace at any stage. Really disappointing for him. He did reach the finish this time. I hope we see him give it one more go. I'm not sure Damon Hill and the Hill family hope that because it's just Graham Hill at the moment with the triple crown record. But how good is it to have seen Alonso in his motorsport journey? Because that was his first single-seater race since 2018. We know he's coming back to Formula 1. We're looking forward to seeing some Alonso magic. But it's great that he's tried the great races and uh, he's won Le Mans. So it's, uh, it's just Indy that's eluded him. Did you get the impression that he'd slightly checked out of Indy now that he's got that Renault deal in his back pocket for next year? Did he sort of not really want to be there because his focus is already on next year? No, I think he would have been a contender if he'd been in one of the, the powerhouse teams in IndyCar. I was thinking of Takuma only a couple of weeks ago when, uh, I don't know if you saw it, Alex, but there was a horrific accident at turn three in Austria in the MotoGP race. Yes. And, and I was reminded of Takuma's crash with Nick Heidfeld at that very corner back in 2002. And I was thinking, what is it about that corner and how actually had it not been for Eggbull Hamady, the designer of that Jordan EJ12, making the nose so high. It was the highest nose in Formula One back in 2002. It meant that the gearbox that crashed into the size of Takuma's car went underneath his legs, underneath right. his knees. Had it been a conventional nose like every other car, he may well have had horrific injuries to his legs. But actually, the, the gearbox uh, put a hole in the side of the car, but underneath his knees. So, I didn't know um, that. I, 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 remember, I yeah. remember the crash, but I didn't know that. It's re that's really interesting. And, and thank goodness he did uh, get away with that one because he's provided some great entertainment in, in recent years. So that is what the ex and future Formula One drivers were up to over the weekend. Uh, in terms of what's going on right now in Formula One, all the news in the past week has been off track. Big news about the Concord Agreement. Huge news. This is a fun show, but we like to bring you hard-hitting analysis. So here's what's going on with the Concord Agreement. They've signed it. Nonsense aside, 
the upshot of it is that all the Formula One teams that you know and love, they're all coming back. And this new agreement makes the prize money fairer. It should bring the grid closer together. And that's a very good thing indeed. That's it, AJ. All the teams are going to be there until 2025. And of course, one team in particular really benefited from that signature, and that is Williams. The news broke last Wednesday that everyone had signed. Two days later, Williams announced that after 40 years being owned by the family, they are being sold to some venture capitalists called Dorilton, a US company. And while it's sad, of course, that it's no longer owned by the family, it is great news for Williams fans and for Formula One that that team has shored up its finances and it's here to stay. So the end of an era, but interesting comparison to me, Tom, was the fact that the team went for more money than PSG did when they were sold uh, a few years ago. So Williams Formula One team at the back of the field worth more money than PSG, who have now reached the biggest game in club football. It shows you that any team in Formula One is worth a phenomenal amount and it speaks to the high quality uh, of Formula One. But it's great to see that team getting investment. It's great that the Williams name will survive and it's been coming for a number of years, hasn't it? And it's great to see this situation resolved one way or another. Hopefully that team with the new rules can push closer to the to the Williams form that we've seen in previous years. Good on Williams. And one of the guys who knows the team well is former test driver Mark Blundell. That's where he cut his teeth in Formula One. And why it's particularly relevant to talk to him now is that, of course, is that he raced in Champ Car in North America for five years. So he knows all about oval racing as well. We can talk Indy 500 and Williams to the great man. So let's give him a warm welcome. We saw um, XF1 driver Takuma Sato win the Indy 500, his second win at the race. Did you manage to see any of it? What did you make of it? I saw a good bulk of the race, but as you well know, it's a long race. What's the art of winning a 500-mile race? Because I was watching, listening to Alex uh, commentating and, and watching it, and it's much more tactical than I ever previously thought. Well, like any form of racing, to finish first, first you must finish, and it uh, is a big one when it comes to 500-mile races because, you know, I... <clears throat> I think I did six 500-mile races and had five top six places with a win and a second and a couple of uh, fifths or so. So I never worried myself too much about qualifying. So I think that's the beginning of the process. It's actually about getting yourself a great race car. And as Alex probably will testify, you're watching these guys. They're continually changing the dynamics of their race car, whether that's cross weight, fuel burn, tires, um, you know, th there's a lot going on. Aero, you'll, you'll often hear guys coming in and saying, you know, give me a, a turn of front wing or take a turn off or pull off the little gurney, strip off the back wing. There's a lot of things that's going on. And, it, and there's a lot more work to doing a 500-mile race than what people think. And then the art of driving one, which, again, is very different. And it, it, it's quite funny. I've had several people come at me and go, oh, it's just going around in circles. And I'm like, you know, listen, and, and, and I'm talking about some respected drivers as well. They're saying, look, until you've actually done it, please don't pass comment because I can tell you now that, you know, it is an art form. And um, I have the most utmost respect for any of those guys, as I'm sure 
and Alonso does, who's now done it a couple of times and understands that you just can't turn up and get the job done. Using the word respect is interesting. Do you respect an oval more than a road course as a driver? I think you have to respect an oval more than a road course or a street circuit even to a certain extent because the margins are almost zero. You know, you cannot make a mistake on an oval and get away with it because when you get into these environments with three or four cars at these speeds or 10 or 15 cars in a long line, it's almost like being in a small aircraft. It's like being in a very small four-seater aircraft. You get turbulence. You get buffeted around. That's what you feel inside an IndyCar on an oval. And until you've got that experience built up and then you know where to position your car because you need some airflow to be you know, slightly efficient with your aero because if you tuck yourself in behind too much, it takes the air off your nose or it takes the air off the back of the car and you're off. And I think that's what you saw a lot of yesterday. So a lot of inexperienced guys get caught out. And the guys with experience come to the front. And they may have started at the back, but they just push on, push on, push on. They know how to work it. And the teams as well. There's a lot of history there and tradition and data that sits there. And old heads down pit lane that make things work over 500 miles. Do you remember? So Scott Dixon finished second in the race. And he tested for Williams in the 90s. Do you remember there was a bit of a stir about him back then, wasn't it? It would been interesting to have seen him in Formula One, I think. Well, you know, I know Scott well, um, and Scott came into the team that I was with in, uh, in IndyCar, Kart back then, PacWest Racing, as a, as a young Kiwi. And you could see there was a huge amount of ability and talent there. And I have to tell you, he is a world-class driver. There's no two ways about that. Uh, 40 years old, still functioning at the top of his game, and a professional, you know, a, a consummate professional. He's in top shape. He addresses everybody in, in a way that is at the top of his game. And, you know, what is he, five times champion or something now? I don't know. He's won the title so many times out there. Speaking of Williams, um, making headlines this week for the team being sold. It's a team that you know well, Mark. How central to operations was, was Frank Williams when you were the test driver at the team? Oh, very central. I mean, that's the guy that I dealt with uh, and who gave me my opportunity to get into Formula One. I was a, a young guy doing F3000 and sports cars. I had a combined program. He gave me the break to, to start to do test and development work. And I think I was probably the first generation of test driver back then. A team like Williams, I would have done easily 10, 12,000 kilometers during one season. And I was testing the latest technology. So I, I doubt there's many more people in the world that have done as much active ride suspension work as me. <laughs> uh, semi-automatic gearbox work back then. ABS you know, so all these things that we, you know, we kind of know about, they had to start somewhere. And, and the guys at Williams were fantastic. Um, great bunch of guys. Patrick Head, Frank Williams, you know, proper racers. I'm saddened that it's no longer going to be in the ownership of the family, but I'm incredibly happy that it will remain in the pit lane under the Williams name. Do we hope that this is now a start of a, a more competitive era for them? Well, you know, I, I think it's just a... Uh, it's a change of the guard, isn't it? If you, if you now look historically and understand what's going on, you've got change in ownership and management at teams like McLaren. Um, you've got changes like we're seeing now with Williams. You've seen the other teams like Force India, EJ, you know, Eddie Jordan. It's just now Racing Point and will develop into Aston Martin Racing. But with it comes this change in personnel and, and, and leadership and to a certain extent, for me, also a change in 
those purists, those racers that, uh, you know, and the designers, the table thumpers, the guys that, you know, led a, a team of young draftsmen and, and, and design guys and conceptual things. It, it's all gone to computer screen and fluid dynamics and, and design by committee. And also, you know, leadership. And I do really think that, you know, the, the face of F1 will change even more. And I think that, you know, our, our characters and our traditions as we knew them, especially somebody at my age, um, you know, it will change and it will be to an extent not as recognisable by a long shot from what I remember it for sure. Um, let's bring it back to 2020, the Formula One season so far. What has stood out for you this campaign? I think you have to say uh, for me, a couple of guys, you know, again, Lewis, you, you have to sit back and admire that the guy can turn up and deliver to the level he does the drive the determination you know the focus when you're doing something for the duration he's been doing it at, at the top for so long it's incredibly tough to keep coming out and producing and, and improving and i think he has improved again and then i look at young verstappen and i just see somebody who is you know balls to the wall will go and do whatever he needs to do and, and he's wringing a car's neck and I think that's fantastic. And I'd love to see him head to head with somebody like Lewis in the same machinery. Problem is, we'll probably never see that. I wanted to ask you about the next generation, part of the Young Driver Academy at Ferrari, the Formula Two points leader at the moment, driver you know very well indeed. Callum Eilot is a name that we're going to be hearing more and more uh, as we get to the business end of the F2 season. What have you made of his campaign this year? And what chance of this exciting young British driver on the grid for Formula One next year? Well, obviously, you know, Callum is under our management as we speak. And I think at this stage, and I'm being very open, I think it's still a case of just head down and keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, I've always said results speak for themselves. And I don't think you can take that away. And, and nobody down pit lane can take it away. So they have to stand up and take note. And I think he's come on hugely. I think, you know, he's walked into a team which we uh, we looked at for him and we felt that it was going to be the right platform with a strong teammate to try and take him to the next level. And I think that's that's been shown. But, you know, you've got quality guys out there and you've got a lot of understanding of what they need to do, but they're still going to go and deliver. And I think, you know, the season's a long way from being finished yet. So we need to wait until then. Again, looking down pit lane, we've got to see what opportunities may exist. And where we are today, you know, there's very few that might actually develop into an open seat. So those considerations have got to be taken on board. And, and you know, you can't keep going around and hovering in an area. You've got to keep progressing. So we've got to, we've got to understand what that might be. But I'm probably, I'm thinking we're probably still six, seven weeks away from anything shifting at the moment. It's really tough, isn't it? There's no Brabham. There's no test drive worthy of the name for these young guys to come through and, and, and we sort of so that we can watch them and, and just see how good they are. Well, I, I think it's a very valid point, Tom. And, I, and I, again, we just touched on where I started with Williams. And I do feel that that's where maybe the sport's gone a little bit out of kilter because I think it would be fantastic to get the testings back up and running with a... You know, with a, with a restricted budget, but at the same time, developing the next generation of talent where they have the confidence to go and sign that guy to put in their car. Because I understand, you know, you look at a big team, it's a high risk, you know, situation of signing a driver who's just jumped out of an F2 car and into 
Formula One. It's not just about driving the car. It's about all the other pressures that go with it. So you will see Verstappen come in and set the world alight. And then he had a little bit of a lull, if you look. And, and now he's come back again and he's even stronger. But, you know, it's probably only a team like Red Bull that were able to actually do that and take the risk on board to, you know, and we've seen some churn there as well with that team. But some of the other guys, they just won't take it. And there's accountability at stake for that. And we don't get the change in drivers that we're used to. You know, it's, you're looking at it and there's, there's drivers with teams for, for quite a long time these days. And, uh, you know, I only wish it was like that when I was doing it. It would have been a lot easier, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> now, look, one of the guys you worked with when you were at McLaren was Ayrton Senna. And Alex and I were wondering, who on the current grid reminds you of Ayrton? That's a very good question. Um, you know, Senna was quite unique. And I, and I say the unique not because of his genius behind the wheel, but because of his, his, his manner and, and functionality away from the track. And, I, and I'm saying that in a way that he got people to do things, probably when they didn't even know they were doing them. And at the same time, he was able to put pressure into the system and get everybody pulling in the right direction. And he had this sort of charisma and presence about him that, that did it. And, you know, I learned a huge amount from seeing him operate. The way that he functioned and the way that Gerhard functioned when I was there in 92 as, as the test driver was very different. Um, but to compare him to somebody today, <clears throat> I mean, Lewis would be there, but I still, I still don't quite see some of the attributes that Senna had because then, you know, Lewis is a, is an individual in his own right. And he's a very different makeup of driver in many ways to Senna. You know, I, I look at Lewis and I, I'm astounded that I see him one week or we did pre COVID one week at a, you know, a catwalk show in New York. And then the following weekend, he's sitting there winning a the Grand Prix. You know, I, I don't know how the guy does it. Um, and I don't think Senna would have ever done that. You know, it just wasn't in his DNA. But I thought you might have said Max. You know, I, I, you're clearly impressed by Max, given what you've been saying. I, I am impressed by Max. I think Max is a driver and that pure driving, you know, aggression and, and determination and, and talent, you know, without a doubt. I mean, he's doing things in a Formula One car that many have, have never done and won't. Um, but I think also that it, I just don't see yet the, the maturity of Max, and it may well be yet because of his age. He's still a very young man. I don't quite see yet where he's going to get to a point of being where Senna was, where he would lead a team and take it to the next step. But again, Tom, the thing is, as I'm saying, I'm only referencing from when I was doing what I was doing. And the dynamics of what a driver needed to do were very different. You know, and, that, and that's why I think it's difficult to actually give a good comparison because I think you know, things have moved on so much. It's almost plug and play style. You know, and and that's, that's the differential. So that human output outside of a car, I'm not sure where it is anymore in comparison to where it was back in my day. And it sounds incredibly sad to keep saying back in my day, but that's the reality of it. <laughs> You're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> 54 and feel like 64. But anyway. Well, look, Mark, can we just doff our, doff our caps to Spa? We're heading to the Ardennes um, this weekend. Great. Actually, it's great that we're talking about Senna because it's such a great driver's track, isn't it? And in fact, you finished in the points in every race you did there bar one. So uh, what excites you the most about Spa when you, when you see it's on the calendar coming up next weekend? It's, it's the most natural circuit 
in terrain and configuration and flow with challenges that are like no other and a, and a long lap so which is great when you get it right but painful when it's wrong and it's a long time to get round again and start another one i think if you asked any grand prix driver it would be up in the top three circuits in the world they'd all come back with a spa front um the conditions can catch you it's one of those circuits where it can be like a Le Mans, where it can be raining on one side of the circuit and bone dry on the other. Ultimately, it's a challenge, but it's those couple of corners there, you know, uh, that we all know of and all love, but they're the ones that actually get your adrenaline pumping that extra little bit. And I think that's what all the guys love. You know, it, it's, it's a very special feeling to be accelerating downhill at 200 miles an hour and go into a compression and then climb uphill and still top off at about 185 miles an hour with a little bit of a lightweight car. Lightweight because it is up in the air slightly, you know. <laughs> and then you tow somebody down there for another half a mile before you get to the next corner. Those kind of things just don't exist anymore. Modern day circuits are not built like that. But what a circuit. And as I say, I'm hoping we're going to go for uh, you know a great race. We're going to get some great overtaking. We've seen some stunning guys make some incredible moves over the years. And wouldn't it be nice to do something in 2020? Well, always good to hear from Mark Blundell. We appreciate his time. I absolutely love the thought he gave the Ayrton Senna question. He was really searching for a comparison. And you could just tell he knows that he saw something unique that we will likely never see again. Have we seen the concoction that makes Ayrton Senna talked about to this day? No. And I thought that answer revealed it from Mark Blundell. He really thought, where, where, you know, is there any element uh, that he could compare? He couldn't find it. What a special time that must have been for him. I went to the Silverstone test that year in 1992. Took place just a couple of weeks before the Grand Prix. And I vividly remember seeing Blundell and Senna standing next to each other in the McLaren garage. Very much pupil and master. And it uh, must have been an incredible time, as you say. But of course, on to Spa this weekend. And AJ, it's going to be a poignant weekend, isn't it? Yes, it will be. There's no escaping the events of last year. Uh, the tragic loss of Antoine Hubert during the race for Formula 2. That's going to be at the forefront of not just the Formula 2 paddock's mind, but also his uh, friends in Formula 1. The Formula 1 drivers, a lot of them were giving interviews when that crash happened, there's a big screen that you can you can see in the interview pen at, at Spa. It is worth saying, it is worth repeating. I know we said this a year ago, but Antoine Hubert was a hugely talented driver who absolutely had a path to Formula One. Uh, he was a special driver in the car. He was a special driver out of the car. He was a really engaging, funny, optimistic guy. And uh, I think of his family, certainly on the days where everyone travels, to races, that that journey was interrupted, but the Hubert family showed tremendous resolve in the face of appalling circumstances. And one Manuel Correa continues his rehabilitation from that accident uh, to this day. He's still putting the hours in. He's still working very, very hard indeed to make sure that that's not the last that we see of him in a, a racing paddock as well. So we remember Antoine Hubert and we send strength to Juan Manuel to continue his rehabilitation uh, and join us once again in the in the racing paddock on, on a Grand Prix weekend. This is a track that despite everything that has gone on, every single driver wants to compete at, wants to take on and wants to tame this weekend. 
Lovely words, AJ. And let's hope that we have a safe weekend of racing coming up at Spa this weekend. And from a Formula One point of view, who's it going to be? Is Lewis Hamilton going to take his fifth win of the season? What do you think, AJ? Well, it's going to be on the evidence that we've seen another private battle, but Max Verstappen, born in Belgium, so he will be very, very keen indeed to go well at the uh, one home event that he does still have on the calendar for this year. So I think we're in for more of the same. It's the last chance to use your engine modes. Yes, I'm talking about thrilling engine modes. I think the driver who's going to put the most into his weekend is George Russell, because I think Williams are set to lose out on a Saturday when they can't use those mighty engine modes from Mercedes from Monza onwards. And of course, from Lassos, all the way up the hill through Eau Rouge up to Lecombe. It's 22 seconds of flat out running in those engines. So if you've got an extra bit of grunt under your right foot, that's going to make a huge bit of difference. Q2 for George Russell this weekend, if it's dry. That's what I think. And what about Alex Albon, the anniversary of his first race for Red Bull last year, where he raced so well on Sunday? What can he do as his confidence climbs higher and higher? Well, that's just about all we've got time for this week. Remember to subscribe and review. Our thanks to Mark Blundell for his insights. Thanks to TC. Thanks to you for listening. We are back same day next week, wherever you get your podcast. We will speak to you when F1 Nation returns. Mm-hmm.